the NBA, Alibaba, Meituan, and more on this week's China Econ Talk. Lulu Chen is a reporter at Bloomberg, based out of Hong Kong, and teaches at Baptist University of Hong Kong. Lulu, welcome to China Econ Talk. Glad to be here. Could you first start by sharing some thoughts about just living through Hong Kong in the past six months, teaching young people? What has the、uh, experience been like for you? Yeah, it's been a really interesting couple of months. I think right now the city is in a very special state of influx, where some days you. You look out your our offices in Central, and you look out, and everything's calm and peaceful. But then, you know, hours later, it could descend into chaos, and you have people lowering petrol bombs right a few minutes across from your office. And then you mentioned that I, I teach at Hong Kong Baptist, and the the thing is,、um, most of the students that I teach are from mainland China, so I feel like they've been thrust、oh, really? into a very special situation as well.、Um, just from the feedback, a lot of Students, even though they're studying journalism, they they find this whole experience、um, really shocking, and they're getting phone calls from their parents telling them to go back to China, telling them not to go out of their dormitories. Go back to China. Yes, to <laughs> drop everything and just go back. I do see like some of them being very curious about the whole situation and trying to venture out of their、uh, comfort zone. So some of them are trying to do reporting and and conduct stories, actually talk to. Some of the protesters and find out what what the situation is actually about. What's your advice to them? I think the the situation is changing by the day. What started out as a, a protest demonstration fighting for democracy is changing into something much more complicated right now.、Um, you can feel that a lot of、uh, issues, including、uh, ethnicity, class. Language are being mixed into the whole issue, and so、um, the hostility towards mainlanders is also starting to escalate.、Um, there have been incidents where reporters who are not even from China, from the U.S., go out and speak and interview people in Mandarin, and they find themselves in a very hostile situation. So, the,、huh. <laughs> my advice would actually be to for for the students to come across and tell the protesters first who they are and. Even speak in a neutral language like English before they engage in further conversation, because right now there's a lot of mistrust going on as well. the The protesters are wary of of people who claim that they are reporters, especially if they speak in Mandarin. Oh, interesting. So your day job is not covering the protests, but but Chinese technology. Do you feel like what What do you think the impact of this Hong Kong story has been on the sort of leading Chinese tech companies on which you spend most of your time? Well, one of the most immediate fallouts has been for Tencent, which you know this is a company that has for years just tried to keep its heads down,、um, keep quiet. Yet, not really promote any of its stances and promote itself on the global agenda. Whereas in action, it's very aggressive. It's buying stakes in some of the world's largest gaming companies, investing in Hollywood movies, and also an instant messaging apps. And right now, I think it's finding itself in the front and center of this issue because for years it's been trying to import U.S. technology and also content, and what that with a China market, a vast China market, and been reaping the benefits of both markets. Right now, these two markets are at odds with each other. 
other and increasingly becoming hostile against each other. So any company that has been um, using this mode of business operation is finding itself in hot waters. Yeah, it's interesting because the uh, you know the incentives for Tencent like they don't want to fight a fight about Hong Kong um, over MBA like they signed a deal because they assumed that that deal would make them a lot of money right but it's it's a real interesting tension where on the one hand these firms have to act against their you know short term economic interests when there's a political uh, a political line to toe. I feel like for for years they've always thought of any global geopolitical tensions as short term. Right now, increasingly more companies have to take a closer look and. See see whether this issue will die down anytime soon and adjust their long-term strategies. What do you think that ends up meaning? You know, sort of for Tencent, like giving up on on, on buying up the world's uh, uh, latest and greatest gaming firms or curtailing international expansion? How, how far do you think this goes? I don't think they're going to go back and just sell all their stake in, in the investments that they already made. In fact, um, they will continue trying to leverage uh, the IPs, the companies that they've already invested in. But right now, I think in terms of market focus, China is their home base, and they need to make sure that they dominate this market and and really operate well in this market first. If you look at WeChat as an example, years ago, they tried to expand that operation globally, and it went nowhere because it had such a, a solid base. And, and you could say ties too close with China to the extent that international users were wary of using this app. So I think they, they've they always hoped that gaming was a more neutral, a more neutral medium. Basketball, it seemed neutral enough, but it seems that in the world we, we live in now, you have like two opposite extremes. And it's a very worrying trend where companies, first and foremost, are having to choose sides. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, for the for the for the NBA players, they're making so much money off China that there's a real downside to speaking out about this sort of thing. We're recording the show on Tuesday morning, Beijing time. And just a few minutes ago, LeBron came out after a press conference basically saying, you know, Daryl Morey, he's an idiot. He really shouldn't have said anything. But had uh, LeBron stood up and said, you know what, we're going to uh, I'm going to make a stand on this sort of thing that costs him. I don't know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars over over his um uh, his and his children's lifetimes. Um, but on the other hand, I think with some of the esports stuff, particularly companies that aren't that big, some of them are, it seems to be trying to make their name off of taking the other side of these protests. For instance, the Epic Games CEO recently came out, Epic Games of Fortnite fame recently came out saying, you know, we're going to defend uh, free speech and our esports and competitor and commentator community. So, you know, the extent to which folks are already sort of like in the uh, in the sort of mainland uh, or already like having revenue that could be threatened by China really seems to be the, the determining factor on where folks are going to come out on this. Well, you talk about the gaming sector. In that sense, Tencent has three large portfolio companies, and there is division among them, these three companies as well. Um, Yes, uh, uh, Epic has been out there saying that they support freedom of speech. But look at the two other investment comp- uh, investment portfolios, Riot Games, which controls uh, League of Legends, and Blizzard, sure. which owns the Warcraft and World of Warcraft, Overwatch, and uh, Call of Duty IPs. These are some of the biggest IPs. Tencent has been reaping the benefits of these IPs and 
bringing them to China and also converting some of the titles like Call of Duty into mobile and and pushing them, publishing them globally right now. And even within its own empire, there's discordance. Looking at the Chinese reaction is also very interesting because on one hand they're criticizing Tencent for not、uh, reining in Epic Games.、Uh, the comments on Weibo, some of them are outrageous, including one saying, "Tencent, why are you not holding your dogs on a leash? They're biting you in your face." Right. On the other hand, in the U.S., it's not getting any any.、Um, uh, people are not letting them、e uh, go easily as well because、um, they're saying saying this is a Chinese company. They're investing in U.S. companies and trying to control freedom of speech. So, so that's what's really at stake here. It's really interesting the the sort of domestic U.S. pushback on this sort of thing. For Blizzard, for instance, they came out very aggressively against a, against a Hearthstone player who was a Hong Konger, and then was saying protest lines on a on a live stream. But then after you know folks were canceling their subscriptions, like delete Uber to to World of Warcraft and whatnot, they they sent out another. Um, another press release saying, "No, in fact, we're going to give this guy his prize earnings, and it's only a six-month ban. We're not going to kick him out of like the Blizzard universe forever." So, seeing the dynamic of、uh, Western consumers caring about the stances that multinationals take towards these sorts of issues, I think is is really new and will be really interesting to follow as this plays out. Because, as you said, you know. Tencent owns for some of these companies controlling shares, some of these companies minority shares, but is clearly like a very important player in the global gaming space. Which, on the one hand, okay, isn't like a newspaper, but at the same time,、uh, you know, has people with independent opinions who are gonna who have platforms who can say things. Absolutely, and I think if you think about newspapers as the twentieth century medium for. Propaganda, information, spread of information, going into the 21st century, more and more the internet and the vehicles that operate on it, whether it be content or gaming,、um, these are the things that government entities, especially in a country like China, will be paying closer attention to on a daily basis. So, Lulu, before we jump into some of, some of your other stories, do you have any broader advice for following Chinese technology? What do you think is different about the way? Uh, you have to cover these firms versus someone working、uh, in Northern California. Well, the Chinese tech landscape has really, essentially,、um, all the power is concentrating towards the top two companies, and that's happened over, I'd say, the span of the last. Seven years before that, if you looked at the first generation companies, there was Sina, there was NetEase. Even for a brief period of time, Weibo seemed to be like one of the most popular platforms in China. But ever since、um, I would say 2012, you've seen the 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 rising of Tencent, underpinned by its super app WeChat, and on the other hand, there's Alibaba, underpinned by its super app Taobao. Together, these two companies pretty much have invested in most of the important Chinese internet companies, and they divide the landscape. So, as a startup operating in China, there is a real question that you have to ask yourself: If one of these companies comes and tells you that they want to invest in you, do you take that money?、Um, if If not, it's very likely they'll take the money to your competitor. So it's almost like you have you're being、um, dealt with an offer that you can't refuse. And so everything covering every company in China, ultimately, it always leads back to all, all always leads back to these two companies. 
It's interesting because you you had a piece about uh, Masayoshi-san and uh, there was a great anecdote of, I think it was like Grab or something, some Southeast Asian ride sharing or, or food sharing or something. And the CEO was basically like Masayoshi gave me the ultimatum saying, if you don't take my money, I'm just going to like kill you by investing in your competitor. So, uh, you know, you can definitely play this game on 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 a global as well as a, as well as a national scale. Yeah, Masa also has a tendency to tell people that he wants to invest a lot of money and then bomb everyone else out of the water. So he over-invests. So, Lulu, what do you think are the most interesting and, and frustrating parts about covering Chinese technology? I think you have to always be mindful that China, the, the tech companies that operate in the country, there's always the sword overhanging these companies, right? So... For anyone covering them, I think it's very easy to finger point the companies and say, hey, you're censoring content, you're censoring your users, you're monitoring and surveilling your users. That aspect is widely known and it permeates basically tech life in China on a daily basis. But how do you move the story beyond that? Um, how do you cover these companies by looking at their side of the story, how they deal with the government, how they deal with users? I think that that's more interesting point of view. And also, like, how do these companies navigate themselves in, in such a rigid regime and still manage to become successful business operations? And to some cer- certain extent, you're looking at how Tencent is actually, even though very quietly, being a global power player, right? How does that happen? Could you talk a little bit about the domestic Chinese media landscape and maybe recommend some of your favorite uh, Weixin Gongzhongha? Um, There's a lot of Chinese tech uh, media outlets right now. I I would say uh, the landscape is not, I mean, the content quality is not unified. But I don't, I don't really have a favorite account that I go to. You just have to follow everything and then use your judgment to filter out what's real and what's not. Because there's a lot of rumors going on as well that, like half of time, turn out not to be real. There's another thing I just be mindful. I think a lot of these media outlets are also sponsored by companies, even though they mask themselves as neutral platforms. So that's just something that people have to be mindful of as well. Some folks are better at it than others, but once you see uh, one author writing sort of like three or four articles saying nice things about one particular company, um, it's like, come on, guys, like get get an agent to like you know hook you up with different uh, different firms, so it's less uh, it's less transparent. So, Lulu, you've been covering Alibaba and Jack Ma for a long time now. You wrote last year in a piece that Jack Ma has showed that an innovative private enterprise could thrive under a communist party regime once hostile and still at times suspicious of ambitious capitalists. To a remarkable degree, his pathbreaking success created the model that gave rise to a technology industry that rivals Silicon Valley, propelling a Chinese economy on track to eclipse that of the U.S., Care to expand a little bit on Jack Ma and his legacy? I think the context of uh, understanding China's internet ascendance is that for years, the government never thought of the sector as a sexy, lucrative sector that the state absolutely needed to dominate and control. 
Um, they dominated key sectors like energy, communication, and transport. But in the end, the internet sector was the one that was kind of left out. So that's why you had all these companies with very daring entrepreneurs,、uh, many of them with Western backgrounds, who went to Silicon Valley to seek venture capital, take that, and come back to China and explore the market. Before the government realized what was happening, you already had a generation of entrepreneurs who thought of themselves on par with Western, their Silicon Valley peers.、Um, through the years, as China's tech giants、uh, increased their power and also their their dominance over Chinese users, I think the government had a reckoning that this was a sector that they needed to take control of. For the past seven years or the past decade, I would say, the story of Chinese internet has. Been the government trying to rein in these companies and take control over them in in the sense that not over not only in terms of content wise but also their daily operations. We've seen the stories、um, just over the past few months where government. Entities,、um, public security agents have been.、Uh, first of all, this happened a few years ago, where public security agents were sent a dispatch to internet companies that were of certain scale to make sure that their operations were in line.、Um, and then, just a few months ago,、uh, in, in Zhejiang Province, the the government officials were dispatched to companies like Alibaba、um, to make sure that they say. They say this was an effort to help coordinate government initiatives and initiatives and companies,、um, but actually, I think a lot of people also view it as reining in these company operations and make sure that they stick with whatever the government、um, initiatives are. I love the idea of these government officials just showing up at Alibaba and expecting to like understand what's happening in these places.、Um, but I think just like scaring the daylights out of folks is is more the、uh, is more the idea. Yeah, it will be really interesting to to see like if we could actually find out how these government officials are coping, whether people are really answering to them within the companies.、Um, that yeah, it's a real. You could say it's an experiment to to see if it really works out in the end. But ultimately,、yeah. it's I also, think the government the has a lot of leverage over these companies as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I guess I love the personal dynamic of you know the the regulators are probably making like one tenth of the salary, right? As like these mid level Ali managers who they're supposed to、um, uh, be reining in. But no, it's it's tough because as you said, just like getting at the heart of these stories as a reporter must be、uh, must be really difficult. It's hard, but it's exciting as well. Seeing how they jump through hoops. I mean, the companies jump through hoops and somehow thrive, and also. Thrive as actually legit businesses and increase their influence, even though they're on on a tight leash, is is a fascinating story. My favorite, like Chinese tech giant trying to curry favor with the government story, is the Netties founder creating a pig farm as like a healthy product for China, which I just think is is great. This like you know gaming giant like Blizzard distributor all of a sudden raising these like high quality pigs. So you have written a little bit about、uh, the the influence of the CCP on these Chinese tech firms. Tencent, it happens, recently organized a red tour for all of the CEOs it backs. Uh, so, what do you make of this and、uh, party committees becoming more and more of a thing within these firms?、Uh, I think it was recently the the companies within Fujian Province or had connections to Fujian that went on a tour, and.、Uh, 
it was some some of the second tier companies that actually went on this. Um, it's not surprising that they're going uh, on these uh, semi propaganda tours. Um, I, although it might seem very surprising to to the outside world that these private companies also need to adhere to a party line, but Communist Party has been requesting co uh, companies, private companies, um, to set up party units within their mm, operations for years, many years already. Um, right now, um, there seems to be a lot of um, a, a dialing up of that effort. The other thing I've sort of noticed is how Mao and Maoist thought is deployed as like a business strategy thing, sort of like you're quoting, you're quoting Warren Buffett when, you know, Mao says to like, you know, surround the, the countryside and then go into the city. This is like a this is like an expansion strategy for a, you know, a grub hub or whatnot, which I just think is like would make would make the old man roll over in his grave. Well, all these companies have government relations department, and I'm sure they well, on a weekly basis, um, tell the company what their latest directives are, um, the rules and the, the initiatives that they should be uh, pushing out within their company division. Though how much that actually, it probably doesn't translate into bottom line figures, but not adhering to them could cause real trouble for companies. Um, the government ultimately does have the say in everything, and as we've seen with Tencent, um, this $500 billion company last year lost you know, $120 billion of its market cap just because the government decided to halt approving monetization of games. Um, that, that's the kind of uh, damage that they can cause. So Elon and Jack Ma recently took the stage together at a big uh, Shanghai internet conference. Is there anything you can glean from this aside from like two sort of wacky thinkers getting on stage? Are there, are there deep lessons about the differences between U.S. and Chinese uh, tech firms that popped up in this, uh, in this conversation? key takeaway is they should have brought on a moderator when you have two <laughs> giant egos, two billionaires talking with each other. I think ultimately it is going to be a match of comp competition of egos. So there was a lot of I know better <laughs> going on between these two. Um, I think ultimately, I mean, like all the messages that they said have been repeated, at least because I cover this sector. I've heard them a, a zillion times before. And Elon stuck with his message that he really cares about us becoming a cross planetary species and the unlikely event that, or the, and in his view, a very likely event that something catastrophic is going to happen to our planet. Jack Ma is more, you know, I want to stay on Earth. So let's see how we can use AI to create more jobs and make people live happier kind of person. They did agree on one thing, which is that they both think that we're going to go into a population crisis, which um, they think that people aren't having enough babies. So that, that was the one thing that they agreed on. So uh, so moving into Ali's uh, present and future, you recently had an interview with uh, Daniel Zhang uh, back in September, who uh, revealed to you that he was a huge Rockets fan. Um, the fact that he has his job still is a, is a real open question there. 
So assuming the guy gets to keep his job after admitting to Western Press his his uh, basketball affiliation, could you talk a little bit first about his uh, background within Ali? Let me not jinx it, but I'm pretty sure that he's going to keep his job. And the reason is, uh, you know, Daniel was not the first uh, successor to Jack. He, he wasn't the first guy they picked to succeed Jack Ma. There was Jonathan Liu before him. The situation within Ali is very complex in the sense that, you know, you have these founding partners and then a partnership committee of 30 people. So a lot of old hands in the company who view themselves as we built this thing, right? First of all, you need to understand the company culture, the mentality, and also earn the respect of these people. And after the interviews that we did, I'm pretty sure that Daniel has done that part of his job. Now, the second part of the question is, what legacy can he build um, going into the future? Um, He already has a legacy. He created Chuang Shiri. What a genius. Yes, he created a double eleven. He created he was part of the team that helped uh, really build Tmall into the core cash cow it is right now. Um, so that all earned him credit for, for for putting him in this position right now. But if you look at Alibaba, it's still largely an, an e-commerce company, right? That That is the legacy. People will think of that as the legacy of Jack Ma. What Daniel wants to do even further is really combine online retail with offline retail. And and I think Chama is his first experiment. Whether it'll be successful remains to be seen. Let's talk a little bit about this. So Chama, it's this really pleasant supermarket, um, which also is very sort of efficient at delivery. And if you go into the buildings, uh, you see all these like bags flying across the ceiling, which is a sort of surreal and like sort of stressful experience. Um, But aside from that is really interesting. So he writes, uh, or you write, or you quote him saying that, you know, we started this Huma business and put them in Shanghai. And he said there were two reasons. First, if you can stay away from headquarters, then you can work quietly and try things out yourself. And second is for convenience because I'm Shanghainese. I come back home every weekend. So I was working here in, in Hangzhou during the week. And then I spent the weekend with my team here in Shanghai trying to incubate a new baby. And you know, there's been a fair amount of controversy with respect to Alibaba and overtime culture. And, you know, this guy whose family is in Shanghai, I wonder how much time is getting uh, is getting reserved for, you know, hanging out with the hanging out with the wife and kids if he has his giant new baby startup in his weekend home. Uh, yeah, yeah. Daniel is uh, known for sleeping with his eyes open. Um, the the Lazada team told us the story as well along the lines of um, them having a late night call to discuss a key initiative. And they had a bet to see how, how fast it would take or how long it would take for Daniel to respond back. And they messaged him on Ding Talk. And within 30 seconds, the phone was ringing. So this guy oh, has Jesus. 30 direct reporting lines, which according to any... Uh, you go to an, any MBA class and they t- teach you about management, they'll tell you that's way too many direct reporting lines. Um, but that's the kind of thing that he's facing right now. Um, so I don't think Daniel, if, if Jack Moss says people need to only work four hours in the future, that definitely does not apply to him. Um, yeah, what was your question, uh, earlier question again? Oh, I don't I, I don't know if there was a question. I just like I like the other thing about uh, you write about how he's this like super sort of short, unassuming, not particularly charming guy was mistaken as a janitor. I mean, maybe this is like the real key. All these like bow down Zong Tai, like super like 
tall, handsome, commanding people uh, didn't get the cut because perhaps Jack wanted to see like another version of himself at the helm. Like if you're too handsome, you just like can't do a good job running a running a giant tech firm, I guess. Um, well, you know, there's a lot of uh, smart people working for Jack Ma and uh, being having a huge ego probably doesn't really play into your advantage. Right. Uh, I think uh Part of being a charismatic leader is letting other people feel smart while, while sh- directing them in the right way. So could you talk a little bit about Daniel's new initiatives for the future of Alibaba? Um, right now, Daniel is very focused on his new retail initiative, and that starts with Hama. Hama is a pretty capital-intensive business. There's a lot of skepticism around this unit. Investors are questioning why they're shifting away from the asset light model into a much more asset-heavy, capital-intensive business operation. But for Daniel, I think it goes back to his thought and philosophy in the sense that he don't he doesn't think that when any business can last forever, no business is evergreen so instead of waiting for other com- uh, other companies to come and disrupt uh, Alibaba's business he'd rather come up with new initiatives and kill off his own company by disrupting within he thinks that within the future online business is still a very limited segment of commerce. The entire commerce sector in China is a $4 trillion business. So if you can capture that that part of the puzzle um, and, and use uh, technology to, to upgrade and digitalize that, that part of the business, then they, they probably have a head start or a bigger chance of, of um, sustaining as a longer business. So you also had a really fun portrait of a Meituan CEO, Wang Xin, uh, which has a very tortured history with Alibaba, of course. Maybe talk a little bit about their past and the sort of resentment that this guy Wang Xin still holds for uh, for Ali and Jack Ma. Yeah, Wang Xin is the rebellion because he started out his business by um, a lo- um, by pledging allegiance to Jack Ma, to the Alibaba camp. But midway through, um, the person switched camps and decided to uh, align himself with Alibaba's arch-rival, Tencent. Until today, I think this has left a bad taste in the Alibaba management and and the animosity still exists. Um, In our interview with Wang Xing, we we found him as a very outspoken person. He's very thoughtful, logical. Um, He doesn't hold back on words, definitely. So um, I think when the piece came out, some of the stuff he said also sparked a lot of uh, reaction and controversy as well. My favorite part was he called Facebook Incorporated a copycat for imitating online services. But the guy did a pixel by pixel copy of both Facebook and Twitter. The goal. I love this. Um, yeah, I, I think like Wang Xing, he, he explained his philosophy about how to create products with us. He doesn't think that copycatting is a sin. He thinks that like whoever creates a product, and it goes back to the whole issue of copyrights in China. It's always been very, well, in the old days, copyrights was never tightly, um, it was never tightly monitored, and uh, copyright infringement was a huge issue in the country. So in 
in a landscape like this, where everyone is copying everyone, the winners who ultimately take the dominant share of the market were the ones who were creating micro innovation, designing the products better for users that um, that they became so intuitive to use. Wang Xing doesn't uh, deny the fact that his first two products, including uh, uh, Fan Fao, um, were copycats of, of Twitter, for example. Um, but I think his point was even more that Facebook is now doing the same exact thing, that it's copying a lot of competitors, including some of the features uh, from its Chinese competitors as well. But sure. people aren't talking about it. That's why he decided to raise the issue. Okay, so it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a uh, a dig at Facebook as much as a hey guys stop picking on me for doing this like this is just how technology works now. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I think that there was, the latter was more what he was getting at. So the other um, the other uh, bombs he was throwing out, talking about uh, and returning back to the fact that Alibaba has an integrity problem, besperching the good name of Chinese business by you know this sort of like financial transaction which took place back in 2011 that no one really cares all the, that much about anymore. But uh, the man the man certainly knows how to hold a grudge. <laughs> yes, uh, that happened a very long time ago. It was super controversial at the time. Um, in fact, even today, I think uh, when people ask about Ant Financial, they look at the business, they always look at the history and how it came about and um, the dispute between Jack Ma and Yahoo and how he spun Alipay out of the company um, was is always something that people would be looking at. Um, Wang Xing's point was that he thinks this has caused um, done damage to Chinese companies as a whole because foreign investors will always in the back of their minds have this question of whether something like this will happen again. Sure. Talk a little bit about the delivery war going on now between Meituan and Aloma. That is still a cash burning battle. We don't, I mean, right now for two quarters, we've seen Meituan uh, increase their share of the delivery market. Um, I think Alibaba still doesn't want to give up. When we talked to Daniel John, they said they're still in it for the long run. They they see it as an essential part of their business where when you're when you're doing food delivery, you can also deliver other uh other products from retail stores, from your convenience store shops. So it, it ties into their payments business as well. Um, Wang Xing, on the other hand, this is his uh, this is uh, his bread and butter business. So um, I think it's it's a long term battle, and it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. I want to say just to support the little guy, I've gone full in on uh, on Meituan. I don't order from Olima anymore. <laughs> it's so interesting because this is a it's a rivalry that it like plays out so directly in the um you know it's not like some abstract battle for like you know like cloud market share or whatnot like you see the people walking around and they have like either an orange or like a yellow shirt on or a blue shirt on it's it's very like early days uber lift vibe um though i don't think there's like a or, or at least to my knowledge like i haven't found like a like a cultural contrast in the uh, in the meituan as opposed to the olama delivery people they always just like run away from me as fast as they can once they give me the food i, I hear they also switch jackets because they service everyone it's uh, all about the <laughs> the orders that they can get Oh sure, yeah. No one's walking around with two phones though on their uh, on their little bikes. I guess you just switch from switch from app to app. Mm -hmm. So um, 
lastly, you care to tell a little bit about the story of uh, Transion, which is this uh, company that's almost unknown in the West, but has been incredibly successful in selling like low, uh, low priced phones, uh, particularly to Africa. Yeah, Transion is the Chinese phone giant that nobody in China has ever heard of because they essentially started their business in Africa. We interviewed the first member who started the, their business in Ethiopia. And this guy was literally slapping phones together with four other colleagues in this uh, hmm. bungalow uh, in the capital near the, uh, the the president headquarters, like 20 minutes away, like in this bungalow. And um from there, they managed to in- include these micro innovations, for example, duos, uh, dual or multiple SIM cards, because um, in the country there are multiple telecom operators. And when you do cross telecom operator calls, it's very expensive. Um, they also tweaked the camera so that it would help uh, take better photos for people with darker skin. Um, so little micro innovations like that that made them really popular in the local market. Of course, there is also the pricing war. Their prices were um, were very competitive compared with any other smartphone. They started out with uh, the dummy phones, but then gradually moved into smartphones. But for whatever type of phones they were producing, uh, their prices were very competitive on the market. So right now you have this company taking over, essentially taking over the, major- the, the majority of the African market and moving into India and uh, going head to head with companies like Xiaomi, Samsung, and and it's amazing that mm, people in China don't realize that there's this giant that is in China right now that that you could say is a Chinese company, but just you know most people don't know about it. Yeah, I mean, I think of for all the sort of negative attention over the past weeks, that's rightly been pointed at Chinese tech firms' international expansion. I mean, this is this is like a really happy story, right? Of folks who wouldn't have gotten phones because the Apples and uh, Samsungs in the world don't care enough. Uh, and the sort of like the the amount of potential profit is, is too small. But um, a Chinese firm that has this sort of um, engineering expertise is able to put it towards a use and, and serve a market that wouldn't otherwise be served. So it's nice to think of these, uh, these sorts of things just with all the sort of uh, negative, negative stuff you've seen in the press over the past few weeks. Yes, but they've also run into their fair <laughs> share of controversy. Um, for example, the locals. Uh, this company gets a lot of criticism as well from locals who say that they only deal directly with the part, uh, the the parties in power. Um, they hire too many Chinese people, import them from China, and and don't hire enough locals. I think that's all issues that any Chinese company has to deal with um, in their course of expansion globally. The mindset of, of only dealing with the government definitely comes from operating within China. You only have one regime that you need to answer to. Whereas, for example, in Ethiopia, um, their whole operation had to come to a standstill partly because of domestic turmoil, um, oper- uh, the rivaling opposition um, trying to take over power within the country. Yeah, no, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. You do have a quote in there about how Chinese firms don't really engage with opposition parties um, because it's just not in the mind space. Like, it doesn't make sense. I like I just learned the word Zayemon. And it's like it's like the, the word for opposition party in Chinese is like 
the barbarian, like the out in the wilderness party, um, which is just, which is just, you know, what, why would you hang out with the, you know, people who are riding around in like the, in like the steps of inner Mongolia or whatnot, but in democracy is like, sometimes they win elections. Right. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very typical. I think of this story. Um, Lulu, thanks so much for uh, coming on China Econ Talk. It was a pleasure. My pleasure too. Thank you. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Chinese